This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Major funding for this podcast has been provided by Public Welfare Foundation and the Pulitzer Center. The screwy thing of it, right, is, is you get so many cases that you, you just live under this constant fear that people are going to slip through the cracks. And quite frankly, I know they do. This is Jeff Esparza. He's a public defender in Kansas City, Missouri, and he's buried in cases. I'm at 150 percent of my maximum possible ethical caseload, basically meaning that if I worked a 60-hour week, which would be a fairly modest week, Uh, for the next year and a half and didn't get a single new case, then I could do the bare minimum to ethically represent the clients I currently serve. Jeff's clients are people who are charged with crimes but who can't afford to pay a lawyer. They all have their own stories, but right now they're just stacks of case files strewn across his desk. Um, So this right here is, I just pulled this, you can see I'm really not putting on airs for you. Uh, I just pulled this out of my mailbox. Uh, These are all of my new cases. I have no idea what's going on with them. Kansas City is the largest city in Missouri, and it sees all kinds of crime, but especially violent offenses. In 2017, the year that Jeff started in this office, the city had the fifth highest murder rate of major cities across the country. This case is a first-degree robbery um, that where a woman ended up being shot. It also has one of the state's busiest public defender's offices. In the two years since Jeff started working here, he's gotten used to carrying more than 100 cases at a time. So I have a murder one, two A or B felony drugs, two attempted murders, one assault in the second degree with a knife that's a stabbing case. But something Jeff hasn't gotten used to, this fear that he's taking too long to get to cases that he's going to miss something, and that ultimately, he's failing the people he's trying to help. And you have these honest-to-God human beings, and you know that some of them are slipping through the cracks. You know that there are things you're not doing on the case because there's just not enough time in the day. That's a fear shared by all the public defenders we spoke to in Kansas City. It's definitely like I feel the stress of 150 souls on my back. It's true of public defenders across Missouri, and it's true of public defenders across the country. Right now, I have 119 open cases. 131 open cases. I have 95 open cases right now. This is the world of public defense, a huge part of the justice system that often goes unnoticed. Hey, here's your 200 cases. You have court in 20 minutes. It's across the street. Uh, Go. And one that insiders say for far too long has struggled with too many clients and too few lawyers. It's incredibly disheartening to feel like you're failing every day. We're going to take you behind the scenes of Missouri's public defender system to show you what it looks like for these lawyers and their clients. Do they have a nickname for public defenders? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they call them uh, public pretenders. And what happens when things go really wrong? Hello, this is a free call from... Ricky. By telling you the story of one man, Ricky Kidd, 
This call is from a correctional facility and may be monitored and recorded. Who says he was sentenced to life in prison for a double homicide because the public defender system failed him. I 100% believe that I'm in prison today because of the Missouri public defender system. This is Broken Justice, a show from the PBS NewsHour about the public defender system in Missouri and what it tells us about justice in America. I'm Amna Nawaz. For complete coverage of all things politics, check out NewsHour's regular politics podcast in your Apple Podcast app. Search PBS NewsHour Politics. From Capitol Hill to the White House, from the 2020 election to hot-button political issues, the PBS NewsHour Politics podcast is your one-stop place to get independent, balanced coverage of political news. Right there, I'll be fine. Yep. My colleague Frank Carlson has spent a lot of time reporting on Missouri's public defender system. He's going to be walking us through this story. How are you? Good. How are you doing? So, Frank, take us to the beginning. Like a lot of people, I had heard about public defenders in TV shows and movies. You're under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, we'll be appointed for you. And as you hear over and over and over again in those crime dramas, if you can't afford to pay for a lawyer, one will be provided for you. Okay, when you say someone can't afford to pay a lawyer, how did they determine that? Well, it varies from state to state. In Missouri, they base it on the federal poverty line. That's individuals who earn $12,500 a year or less. Other states go with double that amount. And you might think, well, that's not a lot of people. But in the justice system, it's most people. One study from the Department of Justice estimated that public defenders touch as many as 82% of criminal cases. And in Missouri last year, the state public defender's office handled 93% of all the felonies. 93%? That's a lot. It's a huge amount, and it wouldn't be a problem if they had enough lawyers. But last year in Missouri, the public defender system, which has about 380 lawyers, handled 75,000 cases. And so with numbers like these, you can see why public defenders like Jeff Esparza, the guy we heard at the top, worry about people slipping through the cracks. Yeah, and I got to see what that looks like firsthand on our trip to Missouri earlier this year. I visited one of Jeff's clients. He's an older African-American man named Kevin Shepard. This is the view of Brush Creek, the best view of Brush Creek in Kansas City. This is it right here, right best view? Mm-hmm. Lucky man. You got it with the iron. Kevin Shepard was 57 when I met him at his apartment in South Kansas City. He hadn't lived there long, and he didn't have much furniture. So he dragged in some chairs from the common area of his building. little getting used to because this place is so, so small. When I met Kevin, he talked a lot about his kids and his grandkids and his fight against cancer. Again, like I said, I was hard-headed. And doctors said, you can't do this and you can't do that. You can only eat this and, you know. But I would try to do and eat. My grandchildren would come over. We'd play tag around the house and everything like that. Last year, Kevin says he was living on Social Security disability and he was being evicted from his home. While he was packing one day, he says he lay down to take a nap. And just as I was getting to sleep, it was this blam, blam, blam at the door. So I got up to see what was going on. And here comes these two guys 
and through the door. According to Kevin, two men kicked open his door with guns drawn. Now he said he'd already had a break-in, so he thought these men were intruders. He grabbed his gun and chased them away from the house. And as I got to the door, they fired a shot at me. And it hit the door frame right beside my head, about four inches from my head. It turns out those two men were county employees delivering eviction papers, and they say that Kevin pulled a gun and threatened them with it. Police arrested Kevin and took him to the Jackson County Jail. He was charged with unlawful use of a firearm, and he couldn't afford to post bail. And a side note here, this happens with a lot of public defender clients. Bail is a set amount of money a defendant puts up to get out before trial. It's like collateral to say, I'm not going to run and I'll show up in court. Now, you can ask the court to reduce that amount or to set other conditions for your release, but you often need a lawyer to help you do that. And, of course, Kevin couldn't afford to pay a private lawyer either, so he called the public defender's office. He says they told him they would get him a lawyer. And in the meantime, he just sat in jail. Well, a week later, I went to court. Nothing. After a week in jail, he still didn't have a lawyer. And Kevin said he wasn't getting his medications and that he had to sleep on a mat because there weren't enough beds. And if you can imagine, people urinating on the walls and on the floor and everything, overcrowdedness. And uh, I'm not used to being in that, in that kind of environment. And look, it's not just Kevin saying this about the Jackson County Jail. There have been a lot of bad stories over the years about that place. Reports of overcrowding, violence, abuse. I was just in shock that they wouldn't let me out of there. I just figured they would let me go. More time passed. And after Kevin was in jail for two months, his case finally got assigned to Jeff, who already had 105 pending felonies on his plate. And Jeff told the judge he couldn't take any more. Wait, you can do that? Yeah, actually, public defenders are supposed to do that. Their professional guidelines tell them not to take more cases than they can handle, because you can imagine doing that will hurt all the clients they already have. So that's what Jeff tried to do. He told the judge he couldn't take Kevin's case. But the judge said, no, you have to take it. And I filed entry of limited appearance. I had too many cases. And representation of Mr. Shepard would make it so that I would materially put the representation of my already existing clients at risk. So I had to decline the case, and Judge Standard said no. But because of a computer glitch and the huge number of cases Jeff already had, Jeff missed Kevin's next hearing. So again, Kevin's case got delayed, this time so Jeff could catch up. And I was like, this is a nightmare, and this can't be going on. You know, and this is supposed to be America. I so at this point, Kevin had a lawyer, but he'd already been in jail for two and a half months, and Jeff had just started working on his case. So the first thing Jeff did was try to get Kevin out of jail. He asked the court for a hearing, and then the court denied that motion. Each time I went to court, I thought it would end, but it just continued and continued and continued. And Finally, with Jeff's help, 118 days after he was arrested, Kevin got out of jail. Right, but since he was being evicted when all of this started, his home and all of his stuff were long gone. It's not about me as a person. It's not about me as an individual and what they've done to my life because they've destroyed it. No home, no property. I, I'm still trying to figure out how to explain this to my grandchildren because all they, they thought 
Papa went on vacation. So Amna, this is one of the things that Jeff means by people falling through the cracks. People spending weeks or months in jail because there aren't enough public defenders to get to their cases quickly, and because those clients are too poor to pay to get out on bail. Cases like this show how different somebody is treated if they're poor compared to somebody of relatively modest middle-class means. If Mr. Shepard had had a friend or a family member who could have lent him $1,000, he would have spent one day or no days in jail. He did not have those resources. And remember, Jeff had told the judge that he couldn't take Kevin's case because he already had too many, which means he had to put aside everything else to get Kevin out. There were, there were definitely whole days, and, and coming up to what was the first trial setting, an entire week where I completely had to set aside everything else that had to be done on everybody else's case. Uh, some stuff that was pretty darn important. Some things that I'm just now catching up on. You know, when I met Kevin this past June, more than a year after his arrest, he said he was determined to have his day in court. And for the first time it came up in court that they wanted to make a plea deal. And I said, no way. A plea deal is an agreement with the prosecutor. If clients plead guilty, often they'll get a lesser charge or punishment in return. Why'd you say no? Because I'm not guilty of a crime. I'm convinced that God's going to see me through this. We kept in touch with Kevin after our trip to Missouri. But after a couple of months, he suddenly stopped returning our calls. A couple of days passed. And then we found out through Kevin's friend that Kevin had passed away without ever getting his day in court. And around that time, I happened to be in Kansas City, and so I went back to see Jeff. He hadn't spoken with Kevin for a few weeks, and so I gave him the news. Jeff told me the state would drop the charges and Kevin's case would be sealed. Does that feel right to you? I mean, that he died with this hanging over his head? No, I, 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 I guess I just found out about his death today, so truthfully, I'm still kind of processing it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to... No, 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 it's fine. You know, I'm, trials are very stressful. I'm, I'm not worried about me, but they're very stressful for people. I'm glad that a sick man didn't have to go through days of what would have been an extremely stressful occasion. Kevin Shepard, a sick man who spent months in jail waiting for a lawyer. That's just one example in one state's public defender system. But the public defense crisis is playing out across the country. After the break, how do public defenders manage all these cases, and how else are clients affected? And later, what happens in a more serious case with a life sentence on the line? For more than 40 years, the PBS NewsHour has provided solid, reliable reporting that has made it one of the most trusted news programs on television. From news headlines to analysis, millions of people rely on the context, independence, and balance the NewsHour offers. Watch, read, follow the news hour on broadcast and online every night. We just looked at one particular case in Missouri, but these stories are playing out everywhere. And now to New Orleans, where some defendants, especially poor people arrested for major crimes, are going without legal representation. In Louisiana, California, New York, 
Public defender in Portland talks about why he and more than a dozen of his colleagues walked off the job today. Wyoming, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon. He says they're overwhelmed with too many cases and the system needs to change. This is a widespread problem that affects a huge part of our justice system and a critical one. Because public defenders, they're supposed to do everything private lawyers do. They're with you at your hearings and they go through the evidence in your case. They investigate that evidence to find out if what the police are saying is true. They talk to witnesses and help negotiate plea deals, and they represent you at trial. But this crush of caseloads can lead to poor defendants spending longer in jail, waiting for their public defenders to get to their cases. And courts, they need public defenders to move these cases through the system. So without enough public defenders, the whole system grinds to a halt. Keep in mind, this is a national epidemic of underfunding public defense. Missouri's 49th in the United States. Only Mississippi is behind us. That's Michael Barrett, the head of Missouri's public defender system. Everything you've been told in grade school about these mantras that are associated with the criminal justice system, what makes us so wonderful, it's all, it's all a load of crap. It's all a load of crap. We could have told this story in a lot of places, but Missouri is near the bottom of the pile in funding for public defense, 49th out of 50, according to reports. At the same time, the state has one of the highest incarceration rates in the country, and a disproportionate number of those incarcerated people are African-American. There's a correlation here. We don't fund indigent defense, and for that reason, we lock up everybody. And so Michael Barrett has been telling anyone who will listen that this system is in crisis. Well, you should be cynical. It's all, it's all a charade. He says the state I mean, government, it just doesn't provide enough money to hire all the lawyers to defend all the clients and all the cases that prosecutors want to charge. And so it's those clients who ultimately suffer. We pride ourselves on getting to be the ones who stand up for these individuals, who try our best to make sure that they receive adequate protections under the Constitution. We can't do that because of the sheer number of clients we have, but that's certainly our goal. And no matter what clients are charged with, whether they're guilty or innocent, they still have the right to a lawyer, a lawyer who can actually represent them. But these clients, they say that they're being treated a lot differently than people who can afford a private lawyer. And that's why in jails and prisons and on the streets, there's a nickname for public defenders. Oh, do you have a public pretender? A public pretender. Public pretender. Public pretenders. <laughs> They think this system is a joke. That says a lot coming from those folks. But practically speaking, I guess, if these lawyers have too many cases, how do they manage them all day to day? Well, in one word, triage. You hear a lot of PDs talk about this is, this is the emergency room, right? They're not supposed to do this, but Beverly Haber, a public defender in St. Louis County, says that's exactly what they have to do. You can't keep looking at the next ambulance that's pulling up. You have got to just put your head down, treat the patient in front of you, and then move on to the next. Public defenders take the case that needs the most attention right this second. Whether that's a hearing or a plea deal or a trial, that's the patient bleeding out right now. And they focus all their resources on just that patient. And they push all their other cases off until they can't push them off any longer. Every case is the most important thing to that defendant, right? Here's Walter Stokely, a public defender in Kansas City. But if I get a case that's just assigned to me and I have 50 other cases, the one that was just assigned to me may be the 50th most important at that time. And here's David Wiegert, also in the Kansas City office. You end up with a system of putting out fires, and those fires are people's lives. 
So there are too many cases, the state isn't funding more public defenders, and that just keeps clients in jail longer without any movement on their cases, like we heard with Kevin Shepard. Is that right? That's exactly right. But that is not the only problem. There's also really high turnover across the state. Last year, 15% of Missouri's public defenders quit. And so public defenders are constantly picking up the cases that were dropped when their colleagues quit. And that means that new lawyers are starting from square one. So more delays. And then there's another big problem we saw, investigation. How's it going? Good, 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 good. Amna, do you remember when we were in Kansas City and we went out with David Wiegert? Oh, right. He was looking into that murder case, right? Exactly. David showed us what triage can look like for the cases that get sent to the bottom of the pile. Uh, We talked to some folks, got a little bit of information, not a lot. David invited us on a trip to an apartment complex about 25 minutes into South Kansas City, where he was fishing for any information or witnesses that could help his client, a man accused of murder. It took a long time to figure out they were in the wrong building. I I was going to say that, (laughs) but this is also a very confusing sort of apartment complex. Yeah. David didn't want us to spook anyone with our microphones, so we had to sit in the car while he worked. But man, it's been an hour. Yeah. And It's 20 minutes, 25 minutes out here. They've checked two buildings already. They're going into a third. David eventually found the building he was looking for, the place where the murder happened, and he handed out his business cards. And when he came back, I asked him some questions. And how long have you been working on this case? Uh, I've been working on this case... um, Not very long. (laughs) A few weeks, probably. (laughs) Yeah. And when did the shooting take place? Um, This was uh, early 2018. So we're now June 2019. Yeah. So is this the first time you all are out here talking to these witnesses and finding out what they remember from a year and a half ago? Yes. Is is that a problem? Yes. (laughs) It is. I mean, Okay, wait, just, just to be clear, the very first chance that David had to visit the murder scene and poke around for anything that could help his client, that was a year and a half after the murder, just weeks before the trial begins? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? This is not ideal by any stretch of the imagination. This is not what you think of uh, if you're facing charges and you get an attorney. You don't want them to sit on the matter for months and months and then eventually try to do some work on it in the few weeks leading up to trial or whenever your hearing is or something like that. That's not what you're looking for and that's not what we're supposed to be doing, but um, that's what I have to do at this point. Public defenders can't do timely and thorough investigations. They can't get to the facts of the case when they're fresh or spend time chasing down leads. And that can really hurt their clients' cases. But I should point out, that doesn't always mean someone gets found guilty. I mean, in this particular case of David's, that client walked. He was found not guilty? Yeah, not guilty on all charges. But public defenders are the first to admit that that doesn't excuse what's going on here, and that many people are not so lucky. Test, 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 one, two, one, two. Yes, hello? Hey, Ricky, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me well? I can hear you much better as well. Oh, great, great. That is Ricky Kidd, speaking to me from prison. How are you, Frank? I'm good, how are you doing? Good, good, considering the circumstances. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've been talking to Ricky Kidd for over a year now because his story is one of the worst-case scenarios for clients who depend on this system. See, back in 1996, when Ricky was 21 years old, he was charged with killing two men. But he had a rock-solid alibi for the day of the murders, multiple people who said he couldn't have done it. On top of that, Ricky said he knew who did it, and he told his public defender and the police that— And it turns out there was lots of evidence that could have acquitted him. 
I just thought that uh, my innocence was going to be sufficient enough to uh, carry the day. I knew that there was elements of evidence. But it wasn't. Ricky got convicted and sentenced to four life terms without parole. And so he spent more than 20 years trying to prove the things he says his public defender should have found in the first place. I do believe I'm in prison today because of Missouri State Public Defender System. I think if these things would have been flushed out years ago, 23 years ago, that we would not be having this conversation today. On the next episode of Broken Justice, we'll tell you how Ricky Kidd got swept up in the system. I was under arrest for the murder of uh, George Bryan and Oscar Bridges. I was shocked. And uh, I just remember telling them that they was making a mistake. They was making a mistake. We'll also tell you about how we got this public defender system, starting with the landmark fight at the Supreme Court that earned all of us, rich or poor, the right to a lawyer. This was a really big change on, you know, arguably the biggest change to our legal system in the country's history. That's on the next episode of Broken Justice. Broken Justice is hosted by me, Amna Nawaz, reported by Frank Carlson and produced by Vika Aronson, editing by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo, engineering by Tom Satterfield, Production assistance from Chris Ford. Fact-checking by Maya Lene Bura, Amber Partita, and Harry Zahn. Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Segura composed our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Sarah Just is our executive producer. Let us know what you think of the show and send your questions to podcasts at newshour.org. Tweet at us at NewsHour and leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. Check out the show extras on our website, pbs.org slash newshour slash podcasts.